0: This flashback episode of Let's Find Out with co-host Diego is brought to you by New Beginnings Hauling and Transportation Services, LLC. Hauling and transporting your goods with the best service for the best price. New Beginnings Hauling and Transportation Services, LLC is a new company based out of Caroline County, Virginia. Our goal is to provide you with the best service for the best price. We started this company to give people affordable prices to ship their property safely and in a timely manner to ensure quality work. You will be working with the owner and operator who has 20 plus years of experience from start to finish, which leaves out room for miscommunication from that middleman. Please visit our Facebook page, email us at newbeginningshauling22 at gmail.com or call 703 850 0888. That's New Beginnings Hauling and Transportation Services LLC. Hauling and transporting your goods, with the best service for the best price. That's 703-850-0888.
1: On this flashback episode of Let's Find Out, we will be replaying an episode about one of my favorite entertainers of all space and time. When I was young, I saw him at a local commercials in the Washington, D.C. metro area for Klein Tyson's Toyota, and it got everybody saying, Vern. I'm talking about Ernest P. Worrell and the man that made him a national treasure, Jim Varney. The documentary is The Importance of Being Ernest. A while back, I caught up with executive producer Daniel Butler to discuss this project and his memories about working with Jim Varney. I really hope that you enjoyed this flashback. Back episode about as much as I enjoyed doing the interview. Thank you for listening. Everything in this universe has a beginning the Big Bang, the formation of nebular matter into stars and planets, the first collections of amino acids in the Earth's oceans, the first creatures to leave them, the first mammals, the first primates that walked upright, the first religion, the first printing press.
0: Pump up your space boots and phone home. It's time for Let's Find Out with co-host Diego. Live to take from the mothership. It's Let's Find Out with co-host Diego. Bigfoot, UFOs, Stargates, Let's Find Out. Paranormal, Intelligent Design, Entertainment, Let's Find Out. You're listening to Let's Find
2: Out with co-host Diego.
1: Daniel Butler? Daniel, thank you for being here.
2: No, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Thank you.
1: Well, So am I. And I know we've been keeping in contact for the last couple of weeks, but before we continue with, with this, what I'd say, amazing story, can we discuss a little bit about your background right up until you started working with Jim?
2: Uh, well, it was Nashville in the 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, and that was an interesting period in Nashville. see, it was after Robert Altman's Nashville movie. And it was, uh, Opryland was just opening. So they were the second biggest employer of talent, singers, dancers, actors, voiceover, everything. And country music was just getting a reboot in uh, the late 70s, early 80s. And so that brought a lot of talent to Nashville. So like I first saw Jim, uh, when I first came back in 70, I was born here in 1951, went away, lived in New York, St. Louis, Arizona, came back in 76. And one of the first things I did was go to the exit Inn and I heard him do stand up. And uh, I had no idea who this guy was. But then I saw him in the purity milk ads as Sergeant Clory, which was his first on camera thing for advertising syndication. Well, that was just a local client. But in his stand-up at the exit and the one bit I remember that he did, and this is 76, he was doing, he did all of the people at a retirement home in the 90s, 2000s, uh, the old hippies. And he did all the different, hey, Rainbow, what's happening, baby? Meet me <laughs> later. We'll drop some acid. And he did all these old hippies you know in 76 40 years from now and now it is in fact 43 years from then and here we are what's up Diego I mean (laughs) (laughs) um he was doing us then now but anyway that's the first place I saw him I got into Shakespeare in the Park here in Nashville just on a whim I was I gotten drafted in 69 um I didn't want to kill so they said fine we'll make you an operating room orderly so i just took bodies to the morgue and amputated limbs to pathology and fun things like that and then went into radiology became an x-ray tech and of course i logically went from radiology to radio uh <laughs> doing shakespeare in the park in nashville and then uh, morning drive time radio uh being a sidekick with stephen wesley bridgewater and doing comedy every morning we had a comedy troupe called Gonzo Theater, and we played The Exit Inn. And John Cherry Buster, uh, the director and co-writer and producer pretty much everything Ernest, and his partner, Coke Sams, came after an earnest shoot to The Exit Inn and saw us, Bruce Arnson, Jackie Welch, Ezra Eichelberger, doing Gonzo Theater. And it was sketch comedy. We were basically doing Saturday Night Live off Nashville. And they hired me as a writer, Buster did. And that's how my connection with them started. I was working, like at the time, we had our first child. My wife was a resident. And uh, I was working as a seven-foot dragon at the Children's Theater. (laughs) Two shows a day for a steady paycheck. During morning drive time bits uh, in the morning when I got hired as an earnest writer. And he was just taking off. With you know a handful of clients around the United States, at that point, so it was pretty new and pretty bizarre uh, to us.
1: <laughs> and I was reading up on your on your bio on the on the website, and oh. you spent a long amount of time with him. And earlier, oh. before the show, show you were talking about it. I mentioned Klein Tyson Toyota because you were also responsible for writing some of that too, right?
2: Uh, the commercials. Yeah, that's where <laughs> I started with the commercials. And uh we basically had the haiku of an earnest 30-second commercial down by that point. Glenn p Steve Valazier, and Gil Templeton were the writers. And I was the new kid. But I learned pretty quickly anyway. It was to one take. If you realize those were the simplest, cheapest commercials ever made. All right. I loved the camping spot because you're talking about we broke every rule. Here's a guy in the backyard, Buster's backyard, at his house. Ernest's house was Buster's house. and His, his kids were doing their homework in the background. But so he, at night in the backyard, Jim has a big flashlight in his hand. And the cameraman, Jim May, who is Vern. He was Vern. He okay. Was the camera. He's the camera. It's Jim and Vern and uh, Rich Shermer, the sound guy with the boom mic. It's three guys. It's at night. They're in the backyard, no lights, and a flashlight. And Jim turns on the flashlight, leans over Jim, laying in the grass at night, and goes, Hey, Vern, I see you're camping out. (laughs) And I mean, there is no production value whatsoever. And it's Barney with a flashlight on his face. (laughs) You know, just... uh, doing, and as a writer, it doesn't matter what you write. It's Barney saying it, you know. <laughs> and he would always say it. And as I still, uh, tell most of the people who ask, most of the thing about being a writer for Jim Barney for Ernest was and literally Buster one day called me up to the conference room and said, Barney's coming over. I want you to sit down and take down everything he says. <laughs> right. And we would just get Jim riffing, you know, and he would be doing characters and stuff, and I'm just copying it, you know? He was an amazing person to work with, but that's how we got connected. But it was, you know, I mean, we were connected because I was doing the morning radio, and uh, we were auditioning for the same stuff and working the exit in and everything, so, um, and almost exactly the same age. He was three years older. And it was the, and I went on and did America's dumbest Criminals and a bunch of different stuff, Yeah, it's all been coming when David Pagano and Aaron and all the people, Justin Lloyd, his nephew, who's his biographer, The Importance of Being Earnest, the Life of Jim Varney, called and said, we want to do a documentary. At the time, I had been asked, Buster, my boss, my mentor, John Cherry, uh, was in his 18th year of Parkinson's, and I went through 15 years of that with my own mother. And his son, Josh, is about 42. He was about the same age I was when I got that burden of having a parent with Parkinson's. And Buster's caregiver needed help. And so I was going up to his lake house to be his caregiver on weekends to help her out. And that's when they called and said, hey, can we do an interview with you? And that's when we began to relive. And, of course, Buster was sitting on... Everything earnest up at the Lake House, all the outtakes, all the scripts, all the production stills from every shoot of every movie of every commercial, uh, because of a woman named Lynn Johnston. Cherry was really tight little family, uh, the production company, ad agency, and everything is very laid out. But for me to get into that documentary research with David and Justin, and that was, gosh, we're into the pandemic, uh, February. Of the 40th anniversary of his passing which we did not realize when we said well we can meet our schedules came down to february of 2020 the beginning it right before the pandemic shutdown and we met at justin's and jim's grave up in uh, lexington not realizing that it was like exactly 20 years since his death and 40 years since the birth of ernest so that's why it all seemed to come together for the documentary as perfect timing for a new generation of young men and women who were earnest fans being able to introduce it to their children and explain why they like this guy or why they keep saying, you know what I mean? Or, hey, Vern.
1: Well, it's exactly with the hey, Vern, because it's interesting When I was telling you when I first came to this country and I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood, you know, people from all walks of life. And it's interesting to see people. St. Vern, who were not even, but, you know, I don't mean anything, not American, but from around the world.
2: Korea. Korea, man. But And we did do ads for uh, Savings and Loan in Guam. You <laughs> see, <laughs> <laughs> only time Ernest said, nice moo-moo, Mrs. Johnson. <laughs> uh, but anyway, and everybody thought he was local. See, because Buster and Jerry, my bosses, Jerry uh, Carton and... John Terry. They were offered the first year after he'd done Purity and Pine State Dairies, just a couple. GM, General Motors came to him and they had him at a hotel somewhere and they offered him a million bucks for Jim to do earnest for GM trucks, GMC trucks for one year. And Buster and Jerry said, uh, we need to take just a moment. And they told me, they said, we went back into our the bedroom of this suite that they had us in. And just fell out on the bed and were laughing and just going, We're rich, we're rich. But it was Jerry who said, No, we're gonna do this market by market, remember? If we do it market by market and we just get $10,000 market, you know, for one year, we, but we can extend this out and this was our plan and let's stick to our plan. And they turned down the million dollars from GM for one year. So, and then Disney, the story about Eisner being in the parade at the Indianapolis 500 and Varney getting a bit bigger cheer than Eisner of Disney, who was head of Disney, is a true story. Um, And I got bumped up to head, uh, wow, I had a great title, Director of Motion Picture and Television Development for M-Shell Producers Group. Awesome. Which was the ad agency creating a new... Entity to produce the films. Ernest goes to camp. Ernest saves Christmas. Ernest goes to jail. Yadda yadda. The family album, the early TV specials.
1: Talking about that, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, my excitement kind of makes it look like I'm being rude. I'm trying not to. So before we we start with talking about the documentary, and going to that realm, how what was the mood or the scenes where. The Ernest, Ernest Goes to Camp. Was anybody expecting for this to go this far and then for so many movies to afterwards? Because I named my first three favorites, but, you know, Slam Dunk Ernest is over the top for me as well. But did anybody expect this to go this far?
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> no. And it probably shouldn't have, actually, Diego. Uh, <laughs> because it was, I mean, Buster and Coke Sam's their drive um, really to become filmmakers. And I think really more so Coke was more the filmmaker because Buster, listen, I mean, you're talking about a really small production company. Like I said, it's a guy with a flashlight and a camera and a Nagra recorder, <laughs> okay? It was a 16 millimeter camera and there's no edit. It's one take, the commercials, right? So you've done no editing basically at all. And Buster says, okay, we're going to do a movie. So if you notice, Goes to Camp is basically uh, what, and that's one of the reasons that I got hired was because he wanted to do TV and movies, which he called the long form storytelling to him. And I was doing eight minutes on the drive time radio and eight minute sketches at the exit end, you know, and I was long form to him. So doing a show, a film, a beginning, middle and end story, it was basically take the earnest gags, fall off the ladder, slam the window on your fingers, all of those gags, and somehow weave them together with the story, right? (laughs) So you're talking about basic, you know, Laurel and Hardy pratfall, really more um, Buster Keaton, you know, sort of comedy, Charlie Chaplin, uh, and keep it really basic, really innocent, the way Ernest was, you know, the appeal of his character. It's interesting to me, but... in the research, again, all this stuff has come up, but the fact that of all the people that have done rednecks, okay? And you know, you Jeff Foxworthy, you Cable guys, all those guys, that of all those redneck characters, that Ernest was the one that was loved by children. Uh-huh. And, uh, why was that? What was it that he did differently than those other redneck characters? And you have to really go back to, uh, who was much more verbal and intellectual really, I think, Will Rogers, to get that same sort of appeal that Ernest had in terms of crossing demographics. You could laugh at him, you could laugh with him. <laughs> you know. You could, mm-hmm. And for the writers, for us, see what was funny about it, it was an inside joke because I'm basically making fun of my relatives from Georgia. <laughs> Shh, they'll never listen to this podcast. But, and then it was at Jim's funeral. And since then, you think you know a person, right? I mean, you work for him, better part of two decades, spanning three decades, the biggest decades of your adult life. And you think you know them. And then I get involved with David and Justin on the documentary. And just one thing about, before I forget about the documentary, that it's worth seeing because even for me, the person that, has known him and worked with him for so long. When I begin to talk to Jim's sisters, his uh, nieces and nephews, Justin, Andrea, and he's got his first pay stubs, his uncle's pay stubs, right? His first W2 as a professional actor at the Barter Theater in Virginia. He dumped graduating from high school to go grab this act-paying professional acting gig, right? He was the actor of the year for high schools in Kentucky. And he bolts before graduation, he gets a gig. And he's got the pay stubs to show it in the biography. And what does he spend that money on? His first professional money, man, over a thousand bucks. He gets a nose job. What? He gets a nose job. And I am going, what? And the family saying, no, his nose was the bane of his existence. And he knew he would never be a leading man. He knew a woman would never love him because of his nose. And I'm like, what? It's like, I worked with a new Cyrano de Bergerac and never noticed his nose. And the second thought I had was, oh my God, we took a wide angle lens and shoved it right in his face to make his nose look bigger. A okay. bane of his existence. And I felt so guilty and so ashamed because I never imagined that Jim was that sensitive about his nose. But then his sister, God bless her, she passed away uh, just in the last six months, I think, Uh, Sandra. She said, I said, I never knew that. I never knew that. Oh, my God, I feel awful. She said, no, no. She said, he got it done with that paycheck. He spent like $700. That first paycheck on getting his nose done, and the doctor made it real nice. And then he got rowdy with this girl, and she swung her elbow across him and caught his nose and broke it again. And he went back to the doctor and said, "Oh hell, I can't help you now, Jim." Uh, I mean, and I, I had no idea, you know. <laughs> and just that added an element to. His story that I had never imagined, uh, and I thought I knew it. I, we toured the state fairs together, just me and him. Phil Walden, uh, his new manager, after he hit it big. Betty Clark was the original manager here in Nashville. When, he, when they started doing Disney and stuff, he needed somebody bigger. He got Phil Walden, who was fresh out of rehab from cocaine and the Allman Brothers, managing them. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: Okay, I can see okay. that. Okay.
2: <laughs> and he was Capricorn Records, and he's the one that said, yeah, let's buy an amusement park, and we'll have parties in Marietta. But he'd been through rehab, and Phil was an amazing man. And gosh, he, he and Varney were just, and he said, Budley, you need to write a show for just you and Varney, and we're going to tour the state fans. And I was like, well, we got to ask Buster. And, and he was renegotiating Jim's deal. And this was like, now we have 50 people. And they put us all on hiatus, uh, laid people off. And now Walden's his manager and going, oh, man. And I'm saying, well, I don't know, buddy. I'm about to lose my job. You got to ask Buster. And Buster said, fine, go ahead. And he's going to negotiate it out for this Disney deal. So I said, okay. I wrote a 20-minute show. Ernest goes to the fair. And I'm the fair manager. So Jim can come on stage as different characters and apply for jobs right? So he can do a bunch of his characters, show his versatility, but we begin, middle and end with Ernest. So I write the show, we rehearse in the sound studio in Nashville, and we tour the State Fair's with Phil Walden, Phil Walden, fresh off the Allman Brothers, and uh, John Nixon was Jim's body man, and me, and we're going to State Fair's, and Jim doesn't like flying in little airplanes, so we take a lot of long limo rides, like St. Louis to Springfield, Illinois. So we got pretty tight. I think I'm one of the few people, perhaps the only person, that Jim did his sequel to Hamlet, a one-man show in Ramada Inn in Minneapolis, St. Paul, when we were doing the Minnesota State Fair. And it was like, this was after rehab uh, that he did for cocaine. And he was on chocolates and cigarettes and coffee. So he would keep me up all night on the road. And one night he said, I haven't done my sequel to Hamlet for you, have I? I was like, excuse me, (laughs) my sequel to Hamlet. And I said, Jim, you can't do a sequel to Hamlet. Everybody dies. And he goes, ah, but Mr. Butler, there was an antidote. And I'm like, really? (laughs) And I mean, And you don't understand, this man was brilliant, and I did not realize the depths of his gift until that night, because he began to do Shakespeare. One man, multiple characters, it was a sequel to Hamlet, and it made sense. It was Shakespearean, it was amazing. I'm very grateful for that. But wow, you think you know a person, but the documentary, wow. The amount that I did not know about it, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, and that goes for a lot of us. Now, the question I'll ask, and I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, was there a point in his career where he felt that he's taken earnest to where he can't do nothing more with him? Was he afraid of being stereotyped? Is there anything negative on his part oh, that? But it, it's such a beautiful character. I don't see why he would.
2: Oh, no, totally. But, um See, Jim Jim did not realize his dream until Billy Bob Thornton put him in uh, the title, Mom and Them, Mom and Them. Billy Bob Thornton, his first directorial movie, Family in Arkansas, Jim was in chemotherapy already, um, finally got to do a dramatic role. It wasn't until that moment that he, Jim, got to realize Jim's dream. The first thing, that's the thing that I said in the Kickstarter campaign for the documentary after meeting his family and getting to know a lot more just in that first blush of research and visiting is great that we really wanted jim to be Ernest. yeah we wanted as a writer see this is what was so frustrating with disney i wanted him to fall in love get married have kids uh, grandchildren i wanted to do you want to take the character to the end right i mean there's so many opportunities and on Ernest uh goes to jail Jane Goldenring, uh, Vice President at Disney. That's when I was I was the go-between between Nashville and L.A. Disney and for the Saturday morning show with CBS and Jane Goldenring I'll never forget. I really wanted that, I forget her name the woman bank officer Redhead I really, and Jim in real life really wanted her to be earnest love interest <laughs> and Jane we're doing the scripts script revisions and stuff, and Jane was going like, what is this? What is this? And it was that whole, she was attracted to the bad boy, Mr. Nash, but, oh, uh, she loved Ernest, you know, thing. And she go, where are you going with this? And I said, well, there, she's a love interest. Come on. And she, she says, Ernest can't have a love interest. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, it's the little tramp. It's Charlie Chaplin. He's smoothed down there like a doll. And I was like, "What?" <laughs> He's smooth down there like a doll, and uh, yes, there's no sex. There's a no romance. There's a no love. He's earnest. Um, so it was very limiting. Uh, Jim, on the other hand, was a series, was a great dramatic actor, and that was his goal in life. And then we turned, we took his large, his most insecure physical feature. Exploited it, expanded it, drove the camera right up to it, and made the world fall in love with that and made him clown. And Coke Sam's, I think, said something one day. We were on the set of Ernest Scared Stupid, I think, and they called Cut. And Coke turned to Buster, and I was sitting there, and he said, So we have a thoroughbred horse. And we're plowing fields, and it was that sense of that. Wow, are we really doing this guy a favor by using him in earnest movies and forever casting him as this redneck bumpkin? And it was the bane of Jim's existence, really. You know, it's what made him the most popular, based on his greatest insecurity: playing the class clown that he always was. You know. But that and it was combined with the fact that Buster and Jerry having that idea of going market by market syndication. So everyone thought he was they were shocked when they didn't realize he wasn't from Toledo (laughs) or from D.C., you know, or from I call up UCLA in research for the documentary to talk about the Jim Varney scholarship, which I didn't know about until a friend's kid got it. He has sent, he paid it forward, and sent, he has, at this point, sent 24 Kentucky and Tennessee high school seniors full boat scholarship through UCLA for anything. There's a doctor in Africa who was educated from the Jim Varney scholarship. I call up to ask about the scholarship. There's a 32-year-old Latina in the admissions department I'm speaking to, and I'm like, well, see, here's the thing. It's He did this character, his name is Jim Varney, and she said, Ernest. And I went, well, yeah, you're familiar with him? And she said, hello, Cerritos Auto Square, L.A.? I grew up in L.A. <laughs> I'm like, well, you're not the demographic. <laughs> we were always thinking redneck white guys, right? And I'm reading Puerto Rican women from New York and, uh, you know, Uh, The woman in L.A. who grew up with him and a Korean guy I meet in Atlanta. And yeah, so, oh, hello. He became pretty universal as uh, very much the little tramp and innocent. And it's really remarkable for me to believe this because it was just a local spot with about 20 people. (laughs) And we were just getting a day gig, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, but with that is what we call a long-term storytelling because it started off as on the local markets with, like, like I said, I was talking about the Klein Tyson Toyota, but it evolved into something different. It became worldwide, and I think that I think it crossed a lot of um crossed a lot of barriers because there's nobody that I don't know that doesn't know Ernest.
2: I know. What answer me this?
1: That's yes. bizarre.
2: Is the uh this word the spray painted word Vern? Mm -hmm. it's everywhere. Now, see, last year, I bought an old van at the beginning of the pandemic, stripped it out, built in my little camper thing, and I went across the U.S. last summer, and I mean summer before, and across Canada this summer, all the way to the Yukon Territory and Alaska, and just got back in September. And um, I saw Vern spray-painted, and I've seen it posted on social media, and I know that Ernest fans will immediately connect that, but is that is that really Vern? Are they saying Vern, Ernest Vern? He's it, spray it all over.
1: Well, it could possibly be. So here's here's what just learning about this, my opinion would be, being that we were all stuck at home for so long, you know, some longer than others, there was time to rediscover gems in the past so there's other dvds yeah. out there like essential earnest which i have a dvd i think it has six or seven or eight of them movies all of them you know in a nice little dvd packet and i think right. that people have not time to go back in time yeah and i think appreciate his work more now because it's different than the type of entertainment we have today
2: it's so yeah it's a low production value but it was jim carrying the day but it is and then the i think also generational that the parent, people who were, we had eight, like eight to 12 year olds were a prime market for Ernest back in the day, according to Disney and CBS. And um, those people are now early, late thirties, early forties um, and uh, having children. So the well, when I was a little boy, um, there's a lot of that going on, uh, for sure. Amazing to see. We're losing a lot of the cast and crew though, and that's why I was very adamant about getting the documentary geared up, what, February? Right before the pandemic locked down. So then David, of course, is in New York and everything locked down. So he got moved back and moved back. But we did, they did filming last uh, Ernest Day at the Montgomery Bell State Park outside of Nashville where we shot Ghost Camp, which is untouched.
1: (laughs) The old Camp Kikakee.
2: And it's, yeah, it's so bizarre for me to go to Camp Kikakee. And if you can imagine, I mean, I think one of the first things I wrote for Ernest, where I actually wrote it myself, was uh, Billy Boogie Worrell in the Worrell Family album, which was the first long form thing that we did, was just a TV special for the markets where we had commercials running. And it was shot at an old amusement park here in Nashville. Uh, <laughs> and there are people that remember that. I went to a Home Depot one day. And talking about the Worrell Family Album. I go to the paint department. And he said, "Now, what color were you looking for? And I said, well, it's gray, but very dark. It's uh, more like a slate or... And he said, "Uh, it wasn't butter, but it was more like a cream. And that was a line that I had written in the Worrell family album that had come to his mind. And I said, excuse me, what did you just say? I said, oh, I'm sorry. It was uh, just a uh, reference to an old comedy that my wife and I love watching. And I said, what comedy is that? And he said, oh, it's a Worrell family album, Ernest P. Worrell. And I said, I wrote that line. <laughs> and the guy at home he goes, what? Wait, come here. He gets the phone, he calls his wife, honey, honey, the guy that wrote. Uh, and it's been bizarre at where Ernest's lines come up that I wrote, Miak, I would like to clear that up. In Ernest, scared stupid, right? The whole thing is based on a riddle. What is it that's gonna defeat the trolls? We've gotten to the point, and I've done 14 drafts of the script, okay? So it's mi blank K. All right. And it's mother's blank, and it's there are all sorts of clues, okay? And I'm sitting there with Jane Golden ring out in Disney at Burbank, and she's going, they need another clue. They need another clue, Dan. <laughs> oh my God, even for an earnest man, Jane. You're talking down to these people. It's so obviously milk. My God, what am I going to do? Uh, I'll just go through the alphabet. How about that? M-I-A-K, MEAC. M-I-B-K, MIBIC, M-I-C-K. Is it Mick Jagger? <laughs> and I go through the alphabet and that was M I A K. And that's where the term, ah, Fine Bulgarian Miak. That was, I just made that up and it was an answer to Jane in this argument about there's too many clues already. Um, And now people are selling, I want my cut, okay? People are selling Miak, jars of fine Bulgarian Miak, and refrigerator magnets that say fine Bulgarian Miak. I think I deserve a cut of that.
1: So, and that's the beauty of a lot of these films. And I think some of the gems, and if we go back to Ernest Goes to camp, Camp, there's a couple of characters on there. I'm not sure who was responsible for writing this part in, but they cooked the most disgusting meals for the kids in this camp. And, um, <laughs> that is over-the-top hilarious.
2: But that was uh, the famous eggs erroneous. And yes. you see people find out that I was the cook, Eddie, which was uh, Bill Burge, uh, you know, was in all the other films. And he's the guy who was supposed to play it. But Disney said, we can't understand him. Bill Burge had a real high, very nasal little boy and a talk like that and talk with fan. And uh, I was actually his voice coach after that to try and get him to slow down. Um, but they called up the night before a shot with Jake and Eddie and cast me the night before the shot because uh, they said Gaylord needed somebody who could talk and be understood to bounce off of. So I got thrust into that. Yeah. What was your question? Camp?
1: <laughs> no. With, with Ernest Goes Camp, it's one of those scenes where every time that you go to these two, they play so well off of each other. But it was the uh, scene where they're always oh, coming yeah. up with some sort of recipe. And he makes, they make Ernest taste it. It's just a laugh riot for me.
2: <laughs> See, that was based on my father. And uh, did the time for the airplane to go into the hangar. That was uh, my parents did that with me. And uh, you see a lot of our youth, and I see my youth popping up, the World Family Album, the uh, Sock Monkey as King Kong. That was my Sock Monkey as a child. You know, oh, oh, the wrestling tie-in. Yes. I should tell that story for your wrestling listeners so it won't totally be off-topic at the height of the earnest uh, syndicated commercials, right? This is when, all oh, the big-name companies were common, and Disney was knocking on the door, and CBS and the children's show. Vince McMahon shows up with a couple of the wrestlers and a couple of his guys, big guys, big suits, and they show up at the conference table of Cardin and Jerry. I mean, there's 16 people around the table, and Buster and Cherry had told me, come up with some ideas for syndicated commercials using the WWF characters. Uh, They're going to be here in a week. I had like a week to do that. So I sit down with my eight-year-old son who was just getting into that, and this is 88. And um, I come up with some funny ideas playing against type in several of their cases. For instance, and I pitched this to the table with some of the men right there. And it was George Animal Steel. And we're just trying to demonstrate different sorts of uh commercial uses of these characters. So I'm doing I did spray on starch with George the Animal Steel. <laughs> and he's in an apron with no top, of course, and he was mostly fur. Yes. And he was unintelligible. That was George the Animal Steel. So I had everything subtitled. So you got the character they all know know and love, George the Animal Steel, growling and barking basically at the camera, while below him is, I use spray-on starch, ba ba da 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 (laughs) And everybody at the table falls out laughing except Vince McMahon, who is like cold, cold steel. And suddenly the room falls silent after my funny little pitch. And George Steel is there, and he's laughing. And... uh, Vince McMahon goes, you never put my characters in female clothing. And I was like, the the apron? Oh, okay. I was like, and it was like, he was gonna come across, I mean, a 20-foot conference table, slide down there, and grab me by the throat. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
2: And every idea I came up with, you know, it was basically, I'm turning it into comedy, right? Because this is how we do it here with the earnest commercials. So we're gonna make fun of ourselves or put ourselves in fish out of water situations like George the Animal Steel doing the ironing. And yeah, so I was not a hit with Vents. It was brutal. And I was very happy we were not involved in business together.
1: Was it completed or it was just cut of the knees right there? I'm sorry? Was it cut of the knees right there? Was it completed? Did we did we go through with that?
2: No. Oh that was I mean, we didn't make it past that meeting. Yeah, it was. It was like he was a bizarre person to have a meeting with. <laughs> and I tried to get my children away from the WWF as quick as I could. Well, that was, and uh, this is '88. Remember? So now, uh, and uh, this is when it's just hitting really big as a form of entertainment, a major media entity, right? So we, you're still having the, well, it's fake. You know? <laughs> you know, it's fake part of wrestling. Where we had done, we got into wrestling because we did a Mountain Dew spot and we had to have a wrestling ring. And I forgot, it was Ernest. We were doing Mountain Dew with Ernest, but this involved a wrestler. And that's how we got to know the wrestlers. And then, of course, Jeff Pillars uh, was Duke and Jeff. Jeff Pillars had been a professional wrestler Duke and Jeff were two characters who were really funny and amazing and came along too late, I think, in our syndicated advertising period to see their daylight. Uh, He was a great actor. He was in, wow, Water, what? He was one of the henchmen to Mario in the Mario Brothers. Or wait, uh, Dennis Hopper in Waterworld? Yeah, some bizarre stuff. But Jeff Pillars was another wrestling connection.
1: No, and I think the fans of the show will, will love the time, especially with George Yann and Steele. You don't really hear too many stories of George Steele. but with And I'm going through the website. So the website for the documentary being ErnestFilm.com. With the success of the Kickstarter, how much um, were you surprised that it was successfully funded like that and out by all the fans?
2: Yeah, because that was the thing. I mean... Uh, I, of course, turned around and went to, when they said documentary, if you're in the business, that means no money. okay? <laughs> so I turned around, I did America's Dumbest Criminals after I left Ernest and Cardin and Cherry. So I had to go through syndicated television long form, weekly half hour and all that jazz uh, and home video and that window and blockbuster and all, all of that paradigm back then. Um, and I turned around to all those contacts in the industry. <clears throat> I was like, oh, biopic, yes. We'd love to do a biopic. That's hot, we could make money with the biopic. Documentary, nah. So, uh, but the only reason for me to get involved at the time, this was four years ago now. I really avoided Buster, my old boss and mentor, because I'd been through Parkinson's with my mother. And he was going through it, and I was trying to just shut off the past, really, and not think about it and avoid that. And when I went back to help him out and his son Josh with the Parkinson's thing and the podcaster's got a hold of me, yeah, I got back into it. And to demonstrate, for and Buster, because of his Parkinson's, he was actually running out of money. He went uh, about a year after I was... Caregiver on the weekends. He ended up having to go to a memory unit that was 10 grand a week, I mean, a month. And John Saxon, the actor, if you go back to John Saxon, Google him, he was in the same memory unit with Buster. So I would go to visit him at the memory unit, and John Saxon would be sitting across the table from me, (laughs) the actor, and look up the films that he was in. He was in so many. And I had bustered the Ernest guy, (laughs) and they both had real pretty full-blown dementia. There were some bizarre visits there. But he was going to be running out of money, and his son, and I was trying to prepare Josh for what was coming because we went through this with my mother. So how could we monetize what he still owned of Ernest in such a way that there would be a stream of income for his ongoing care with Parkinson's? Uh, He passed away. Last June, yeah, and had one of the funniest funerals. No, the funniest funeral. Uh, Even funnier than, much funnier than (laughs) Varney's. So that was, the documentary was just a way to introduce the old merchandise, all of the old merchandise, the Ernest Fan Club merchandise and all that, because he would still directly uh, benefit from that income. It was to create a new source of income. a documentary would only help you in merchandising um, because they don't make money as film but i've asked justin who wrote the biography uh, the importance of being earnest to let's you know now so when the documentary comes out be ready with the script for the biopic because you'll demonstrate the market see we had no idea how many fans were out there how many fans would want him back or want to know more about him? And for the Dollar Boys and for the film distributors and everybody else, the streaming uh platforms, who's gonna watch? Where are they? You know. So I had to, we had to go into all of the different platforms that he appears on, number of views, all that stuff. And Varney's the the DeLorean that he pulled up in the morning. It was the morning, really, about a week after he found out he'd made over a million bucks the first time, right? So you're struggling actors, right? You're going to auditions and stuff. He was living in an apartment with a light bulb hanging from a cord that was below a massage parlor, okay? Don't get (laughs) it better than that. Where the roaches came down to the basement just to get away from upstairs. And... We would pick him up there to do remotes uh, when he was doing Sergeant Glory before Ernest. But he just made a million bucks, man. And it turns out he'd done 7.2 mil in one year. And this goes back to your question about uh, why didn't he like being Ernest? The burden that I first realized it was. I go outside, he pops open that glowing door and that stainless steel DeLorean. He's got on a full length shaft, brown suede coat. He's got an earring, looks like, uh, you know, just a Romany Prince, Yeah, you know, I don't know. And Jim, what's up, Mr. Butler? Let's go for a ride. <laughs> and we're going down music row. In this Delorean, man,
1: and everybody's
2: chopping the love <laughs> and he's driving down this road, and he's telling, me, "Dude, you're a millionaire. Like, it's vacation time, right? I mean, what are you gonna do? What do you want to do? What are you gonna be? What are you gonna buy?" And he's going, "Well, I, you know, I'm booked. I can't do much anything." And he got kind of serious, and I was like, "We're cruising this Delorean." He's got everything. And I said, but no, man, you're a millionaire, man. You don't have to do anything. He goes, no, that's not the way it is. See, I got a publicist and an accountant. I got a manager and I got an agent. And I mean, Cardinal Cherry, you got 35 people on payroll. And then when we do shoots, there's another 25 people. And so there's like 150 people that are counting on me for their income now. And I was just like, bummer, dude. <laughs> and it just, I mean, and it was just, I'll never forget on Music Row and just was turning to me. And in the midst of the jubilation of success and having, this is his dream. He's a little Kentucky boy with a flipping DeLorean, man. <laughs> and uh, nah, I can't quit. Yes, everybody will go hungry. I gotta keep doing the hillbilly so yeah there was that
1: that's an awesome picture I have in my head of Jim Barney driving a DeLorean not many people had DeLoreans back then so that's kind of a special thing so
2: it just got sold to a major fan Uh, Maureen Edwards she did and I think wow I've forgotten what the it was. I'm not sure 65 grand something but still working Um, yeah It lives on.
1: So with that, so after this documentary, what are currently are you working on? What's coming up in the future for you?
2: Well, road trip. You mentioned well, we do this podcast sort of like a road trip. I had three boys. We had three boys. And I'll tell you, as being a father with three boys, road trips are where you connect with your sons. This is my experience. When you let them drink coffee and they're ten years old. And mom's in the backseat asleep with baby brother and driving through Texas with that AM radio on in the late 80s, early 90s, talking about UFOs and Sasquatch. Yes. And everything you've done. And we're sitting there in the front seat, and he's 10, and I'm 40, and we're hopped up on coffee and on the two-lane blacktop, buddy. So two years ago, when they said, I was just turning 70. And they said, okay, and see, I was uh, x-ray tech, operating remotely, all that, married a doctor, uh, divorced after 36 years, and uh, we lost one son uh, 14 years ago in an accident. They were saying two years ago, for the first time, my demographic, the age expectancy went down for the first time to like 74, and I was just turning 70. And they were saying, stay inside or you'll die we're culling the herd (laughs) and you're old and a buddy had an old 135,000 miles Chevy work van that he did the hardwood floors for the symphony center here and a bunch of country stars homes. And I said, he closed it down. I said, what are you selling the van for? He said, 1500 bucks. So I bought this old van, 17 year old van with 135,000 miles two years ago. And I thought, "Eh, I'll get a few camping trips out of this for 1500 bucks. Well, this is two years later. I went across the U S this past summer. I just got back from across Canada to the Yukon and Alaska shooting stuff for what I call and posting on Facebook, the road trip, road trip to the afterlife (laughs) because I want to wake up somewhere beautiful and experience the awe of a child again. So I've been traveling and it's been amazing. And it's uh, basically what I'm trying to do is, instead of having my children having to pay for your funeral, I'm basically doing it now and getting it on camera and saving it so I can actually make money on my funeral before I die. Road trip to the afterlife. It could be the longest funeral ever recorded or the shortest series on YouTube. We don't
1: know. That's a heck of a plan. So the documentary, the importance of being earnest. To find out more about this documentary, please go to beingearnestfilm.com. Daniel, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I um I learned a lot. You know some things I didn't know about Jim Varney. I look forward to having you back on again, and we can talk about these road stories and the, what you're working on now. But as I said earlier, right before the pre-show, this is you made a childhood dream come true by coming on and discussing. Jim and Ernest P. Warren because I tell you it's a uh, I want to sound silly but it really made an impact for a young Puerto Rican kid not knowing much English and it's just you know it's magic is what it was
2: we gotta get that story your story for the documentary learning English from Ernest
1: yes. <laughs> Ernest is a second
2: language I love it
0: thank you for listening to Let's Find Out with co-host Diego we're on Spotify Google Podcasts TuneIn Pocket Casts, and on Anchor. For more information about Let's Find Out with co-host Diego, please visit us on facebook.com forward slash co-host Diego, on Twitter at co-host underscore Diego, and on Instagram as co-host Diego. Copyright co-host Diego, all content for Let's Find Out is the property of co-host Diego, and is served directly from our servers with no modification, redirects, or rehosting. All celebrity impersonators are paid performers. The impersonated celebrities do not endorse or promote any views or opinions expressed by our guests, co-host Diego, or Let's Find Out. The information shared on Let's Find Out is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantees of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness.